0: Oh, yeah. i myself in. Uh, are you ready, Sean? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Levels? Levels, uh, levels, levels. are good. Levels? Uh, yeah, we're, we're bouncing in there. Okay. Are any of you going to wear the... uh controller. Control. Yeah. Oh yeah, I was going to wear this. Hi, and welcome to the transect. Uh, it's me, Cody, back again, up Cody. in your face. Yeah. Uh, we also have... <laughs> <laughs> Who else can <laughs> we have here? This is Sean. Sean P. Canaan. Mm-hmm. And also Ian. And also Ian. Yeah. Ian's back. I'm back finally. Ian's back. Oh God, we missed you. Yeah. yeah. We I'm missed sure you very much. You guys did. Yep. yep. Um, and today we have a very special guest. We have uh, Dr. Michael Clausen. Mm-hmm. Welcome, Michael. I'm
1: glad to be
2: here. You're a big fan of the show, aren't you? I've listened to
0: every <laughs> podcast. Yeah. He's listened to yeah. more episodes of <laughs> this podcast than taken, I have. I've, ta- I've taken. <laughs>
1: I've taken detailed technical notes. Yeah, I know. We have to.
3: We're getting there. Yeah. You, I, now that you've seen the studio, um, you know how the, the magic is made.
0: For the listeners at home, uh, we have uh, one mic that's set up really, really nicely. It's got the pop filter. It's doing great. Mm-hmm. And then our other mic is dangling from a lamp that I bought at Ikea. It's <laughs> working uh, okay. And Sean and Ian and I <laughs> are basically kissing. In order. <laughs> like
3: a 1930s bluegrass band, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just huddled around the mic, trying to make yeah. this
0: sound not like garbage. So no, uh, this is going to uh, thank you for cylinder. your your patience. We really yeah, appreciate thank, it. Thank you, Michael. And
2: you know we're we're really treated tonight because we have a really special guest, Michael. Um, and I can describe Michael actually in three words: mm-hmm. gentleman, scholar. Blow hard,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, and we
2: and we really are glad you came
0: and finally made this happen, Michael. I've been very eager to be here. Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, one of the things we like to do when we get started here is uh, kind of ask our guests about their origin stories and how they got into the the biz, as it, as it were. Uh, would you care to? let us know. The biz being
1: archaeology. The biz, uh, in fact, being <laughs> yeah. archaeology, yes. 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 I think we all got into it before we were getting
3: paid, <laughs> yeah. but yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I, w- I wish I could say that I started my career in archaeology at the age of six, like your previous guest, Wayne mm. Point, but uh, I think when I was six years old, I still thought I was going to be an astronaut. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> when, when that career option didn't pan out, that's when I, you know, the fallback position was uh, archaeology um, but actually I don't actually consider myself to be an archaeologist to be honest Ooh, uh, what, what do you <laughs> consider yourself to be Michael
2: wow <laughs> uh, well my big reveal yeah
1: well I mean I started off in university in physical anthropology and human evolution and paleontology um, so my initial my early academic career Uh, did not really have a lot to do with archaeology. But when I go, I guess when I think back in time, I mean, I've always been really interested in history and culture. And when I was a kid, Mm -hmm. my family used to take me out to historic sites and, and museums and that kind of thing. So I always had an interest in that, and I didn't realize it until much later that that's sort of where my eventual passion would end up. But, you know, Sean, you know me well. I'm, I, would, I do. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm, I, I wouldn't consider myself an, an archaeologist. I'm not a real technical methods oriented dirt archaeologist. My background is more anthropological. Right. And um, even my very earliest sort of attempts at doing archaeology were more on the sort of historical, cultural side, when and in fact going back, okay. So when I was eighteen and graduated from high school,
2: this is Alberta, right?
1: This is Alberta. Mm, okay, we, we got to get some context. Yeah, there. near that's right, near near Edmonton, mm-hmm. and um, I took a a year off before going. You know what 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 they call a gap year now. Really, from I it was just really what the bleep am I going to do with my life? Years, what really did you bleep yourself just? I just I just did my own. (laughs) You're allowed to cuss. We have the technology technology to cuss.
0: (laughs) As the person who edits it, though, thank you. It's very considerate.
1: So, so my first job out of high school was I managed to talk my way into working on a paleontology crew of all things, Mm. digging up dinosaurs which uh, you know as a six-year-old it was probably the other career yeah. i was interested in where at uh, michael i was at uh, well it was at dinosaur provincial park on the red deer river and i was working at that time it was the provincial museum of alberta and the paleontology end of things eventually became the what is now called the royal Tyrrell museum of paleontology in drumheller
0: mm-hmm. one of my favorite museums in canada just amazing
1: yeah, yeah i'll take you on a tour someday uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not even a, pers- a joke, please. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. A personalized, a personalized tour. Um, but <clears throat> so I was 18, uh, wanted to get this job, had no money. And, you know, kids weren't coddled back then. My parents... <laughs> You know, not, not like you. Is that a critique dude? of yeah. millennials or yeah. what is that? <laughs> I was coddled. Yeah. I was definitely coddled. We so, didn't take a gap year. We, we were just coddled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my parents said, oh, yeah, if you want to do that, go right ahead. But how the hell are you going to get there? And so I went down to the bike store and bought a 12 speed bicycle and all the gear and with a friend, cycle took three weeks to cycle to my first job. And Three weeks. Yeah. Jeez. So. Was, was the earth longer back then? Like why did it? Well, it was flat. It so was flatter. It, it was, was flat, right? It was quite yeah. easy. Earth, the, yeah. the, <laughs> the cycling was easy. Um, <laughs> anyway, no. So I started. But what was interesting is that they were gearing up to build this museum in Drumheller at the time. And so they needed. They were desperate for field crew. And they were taking anyone and, you know, witness the fact that I got a job there. Yeah. As a <laughs> As an 18-year-old. Mm-hmm. But they had actually hired a, a number of physical anthropologists and archaeologists to do the dinosaur excavations. Just because they had methods? Me- because, well, because they, there's, some, there's a lot of overlap in, in methods and transfer of, of methods and techniques, and, and they mm-hmm. needed people that had some sort of field experience. And so that's when I was first introduced to this idea of archaeology and physical anthropology. And in the Badlands of, of uh, the Red Deer River, uh, there's a couple of really incredible Blackfoot sites. There's uh, this effigy figure that's made of boulders that's laid out. It's, you know, meters long on the prairie level. And there's Vision Quest sites. And people wow. started, when I was out there, people started taking me out to these these sites. And that's when I, I really had this idea that, wow, you could really do some interesting stuff with... Uh, with these these art, but from a historical and cultural perspective, I wasn't that in, I right. wasn't interested in excavating these things. I went out there and I mapped them and I researched them and that kind of thing. Was that writing on stone? Then were you out? No, there? no. This is still at, uh, uh, in Dinosaur Park, but. Um, when I finally so, but I so when I went to university after my gap year. Is that Alberta? The university of Alberta for my undergrad. I just we just got to make that clear. There's a, <laughs> there's a theme here. <laughs> you just really want to make it clear that I come from Alberta. Yeah. We don't. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm an I'm an interloper here. Yes. I'm, yeah. yeah. I don't belong in BC. I
0: also come from well, yeah, none of us
1: do. Yeah. None of actually none of us are actually <laughs> born and bred in BC. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, when I was doing, so I, I, like I said, I did primatology and physical anthropology and all this stuff, but my first job out of university was like this $5 an hour job working for the Archaeological Survey of Alberta for just, I don't know why they hired me because I didn't really have any archaeological experience at all. And that's when I was introduced to writing on stone, Sean. Okay, yeah. And, university. yeah, so the guy, the, so one of my early mentors, is uh, Martin Magney who's mm. the right, The famous lit thing. Yeah, that's right. The, mm-hmm. the nineteen seventy three. Is I that still right? Use the is PRB that PRB? Is that it? Classification. Yeah. So I, I like to call that the the that the red book. I like the Magni opus. Opus. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's mm-hmm. cute. Yeah, we like that. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Yeah, there's a little shout out there for. <laughs> <everybody>. <laughs> give, 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 we're all about the shout outs. <laughs> So he got me working on this project at Writing on Stone, uh, looking at the rock art. A, writing on Stone is a Blackfoot sacred site, but it's also one of the most incredible rock art localities in Nor- in North America. Uh, Could you describe
2: it? I mean, you've you've actually published a rock art book, didn't you? In the in the is it early two thousands, Michael, or the late nineties? Uh,
1: yeah. Well, I mean, I I started off working for the survey at uh, on doing research on Writing on Stone, and I really. Uh, got interested in the in the place and then I talked my way into getting a job with the park system mm-hmm. and I worked down at the park for 3 years so that I could be at this amazing place and learn more about it and while I was down there I sort of got this idea hey, I should do a masters on this and so I ended up doing a my so my master's thesis is on writing on stone as this this sacred site with that happens to have rock art and I, my thesis was not archaeological per se it was very much a historical cultural examination of the that sort of the continue change in continuity in this imagery that occurred at, at writing on stone icons of power if I recall correctly yes that's part of the Title that's, you 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 half correct I have, I have googled <laughs> Sean googled it before the before the show yeah but
2: you're actually working on UNESCO with that site
3: well yeah so right I'm, now aren't you that's a bit coming up though it's like for they're they're increasing the list of UNESCO well Canada,
1: no, right? so so I've continued to work at writing on stone uh and the Blackfoot name is Asin Ape, um and I apologize for my uh, pronunciation to my Blackfoot colleagues, but uh, that I've been working there pretty much continually since the early nineties when I first was introduced to the place, and we got writing on Stone um, designated as a National Historic Site of Canada in two thousand and five and at that time it got placed by Parks Canada, got placed on what's called the uh, tentative list for potential World Heritage Sites in Canada and since that time we've been working on a nomination for the site which is Mm -hmm. uh, supposed to go in in February of 2018. Uh, We've had a few false starts or false uh, submissions but we're now on track for for February so. It's an intense process. It's a very long process.
0: Yeah. Um, w- would you care to go into like what goes into app- that kind of application? I know Guayanas has, has gotten its.
1: Well, the Anthony Island, oh. yeah, the the um, what, and I forget the Haida name for Anthony Island, but where all the totem poles and yeah. house remains at the very south tip of Guayanas is, is a World Heritage site. That's right, yeah. Uh, well, it's a it's a pretty long involved process, you've got to get all the stakeholders involved and on on board, and um, you've got to develop a management plan that is designed. You have to to identify these things called uh, uh, outstanding universal values. So you've got Uh, to come up with a list of why this place is outstanding globally in comparison to other similar sites. So once you've established that, you've got to develop a management plan that supports these OUVs mm-hmm. and uh, you have to do extensive uh, research and documentation. You have to set up a monitoring system for uh, monitoring the, the conservation and protection of these places and you have to have all these uh, stakeholder engagement meetings and so on. and, and uh, One of the difficult parts of it, in our case, is um, how to one of the requirements is that it has to have a, a buffer zone mm-hmm. as well, uh, where where it's not actually designated as a World Heritage Site, but that you have some control over what happens in the immediate vicinity of your. World is there Heritage development
3: site. in the immediate vicinity?
1: There's not, but it's it's a it's agri. There's uh, ranching and uh, dryland farming and some irrigation farming in the vicinity of it. Uh, there's. Mm-hmm. But there's potential for wind farms, for instance. There's a potential. There's a very minimal oil and gas development, and there's potential for that
2: as is well. It, is there any vandalism at the site currently?
1: Uh, yes. I mean, they've they've really got that under control uh, in recent years. It, it, before it became a provincial park in 1957, there was a lot of... of uh, 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 vandalism, name carving, and so on. And then when it became Mm -hmm. a park for the next 20 years, there was really no sort of management or control of how people used or accessed it. And there was enormous amount of damage took place in that 20-year period. But in 1977, the Alberta government uh, designated the bulk of the park as a restricted access area where you're only allowed to go in by tour. And it's considered to be a model of how to protect a rock art site to this to this day and Uh, the amount of vandalism that has occurred there has uh, really plummeted since then there's still ongoing problems but not to the same degree do you expect that uh like
3: if it is designated a world heritage site that with all of the increased visitation that you'd be able to keep that restriction going like because it's kind of a balance between yeah preservation and getting people in for the interpretation of the site
1: yeah i mean it's a complicated balance between uh, raising awareness of how special this place is and using that as a tool to educate people for why it should be protected and not damaged. Mm-hmm. Um, but over and above that, you know, this is, this is a Blackfoot sacred site, and it would not be nominated on as a World Heritage site if the Blackfoot were in any way not supportive. Of this, yeah. this project and you've had
2: community buy-in and, 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 and support from the beginning, haven't you?
1: Yeah, I mean, right from the very it all. It all started when we started working on the National Historic Site of Canada designation. Uh, one of the requirements was is that we had to build a relationship. Up until that point, in the early two thousands, the Blackfoot presence at writing on stone, although very strong within the community and within traditions and knowledge. Uh, was quite weak formally, like there was no, very little formal involvement of the of the blackfoot. and so I was part of the team that reached out at that time to say, you know, can we work together on this and are you in support of this and And so that experience was what helped me to uh, or helped us, I should say uh, realize that you know the blackfoot were were very positive about this as a as a nomination and that they saw more value in having it commemorated on a global stage Mm -hmm. than that and that outweighed the potential downsides of increased visitation and so on because it would it would raise the profile it would potentially lead to better funding uh, the ma- you know the management plan is being revamped and strengthened, and and uh, development in the area is 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 being looked at much more closely now. And Sean's raising his pencil because he has a question. <laughs>
2: no, no, I you got, I don't. I was waiting for you to finish. It, it, is this is it a
1: place that's still used culturally and today and has continuity for the Blackfoot? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean there. There was a forced break in that continuity in the eighteen late eighteen hundreds, of course, when things like the mm-hmm. Sundance was outlawed right, right. and the mm-hmm. pass system was instituted, uh, where you had to have the Indian agent sign a pass to allow you <laughs> to right. leave the reserve <laughs> right. and go to a, a sacred place like like writing on stone. But in our in the yeah. work that I've been doing at writing on stone, we've been documenting that you know there's there's a documentary record of of Continuous use by the Blackfoot throughout that whole period, mm-hmm. and that's just what we've been able to document. And I'm I'm convinced or positive that considerably more use was was happening under the radar throughout sure. this this period. I mean, the the most recent rock art that we can firmly uh, date is 1924, um, mm-hmm. and that's an interesting story in it in itself. How we discovered. A, a photograph in the in the Smithsonian Institute showing go on <laughs> i know you want to tell it just tell it michael I had, I had no idea we were going to be i had no idea we were going to be talking about writing on stone no, today. i didn't know we're going to so, jump into it this early but let yeah. just just go <laughs> yeah,
2: it's super fascinating yeah we'll go with it and then we'll uh, yeah yeah it has
1: nothing to do with bc well it does have a lot to do with bc archaeology in the, in a bigger sense because right. um you know i'm a firm believer in in that there's Relationships and, and methods and theory that transcends boundaries and mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, uh, regulations and so on. But any so getting back to <laughs> <laughs> right, <Go. laughs> it's very difficult doing an interview with what? Sean when you, why? you're why you, you just laugh the whole. The, I've yeah. known you, I've known Michael. <laughs> full
2: disclosure: I've, I met Michael what when I was 25, and you were. Forty
0: something <laughs> <laughs> now.
2: <laughs> I've known Michael like, almost fifteen years now.
1: Yeah, yeah. We, so we were we were in the same uh, PhD cohort at SFU. Uh, right, you started before me. And finished quite a bit after no, me. No, like,
2: like months. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah well, I mean, when, do, when does
1: months turn into years? <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, uh, yeah. 20, 20 twenty-four months. Story. <laughs> just, yeah. just tell your story. Yeah. yeah, I I don't know if that's relevant. To <laughs> no, it's not. We're gonna edit it. Just, yeah. just go on. <laughs>
2: um, Smithsonian, you were talking about.
1: Yeah, so we so this uh, this archaeologist in, in the U.S. Uh, came to me at a at an SAA conference in Seattle in 1998. Mm-hmm. And he hauled out this photograph and said, Do you know anything about this photograph? And I went, Holy oh, shit. He just he brought it to the Congress yeah. To you specifically? Yeah. yeah. He would printed it off from the Smithsonian and said, Do you know anything can you tell me what's going on here? Did this look like writing on stone? And um I'd never seen the photograph, but I immediately recognized the petroglyph that was in the photograph in the process of being carved by Ooh, a wow. Blackfoot elder named Bird Rattle. And so um, we ended up you know, researching this thing and, and publishing a, a paper on on how this was a demonstration of despite all of the efforts of the Canadian government to to uh, isolate the Blackfoot from the sacred site or or, or throw up all these these uh, roadblocks uh, to to using the site, they continue to come and visit the site. And it's an amazing, we ended up finding a a diary of this individual that had traveled with Bird Rattle in Model T cars to to see this this place that uh, Bird Rattle hadn't been to for many years. And and then he ended up uh, holding these various ceremonies and carving this rock art and it was all documented by this ethnographer from Browning, Montana. Uh, well actually he was not he was an amateur ethno- ethnographer <laughs> he was an he was an oil and gas guy actually <laughs> yeah, so yeah. yeah um roland Wilcomb. but uh so the the point i'm trying to make is that this place has never lost its significance in, right, in blackfoot right. culture that you know you can find all these different points in time where there was this continuity of use and and how strong it is still in the community and uh um, and leading to this point now where where an opportunity arose for a more formal involvement mm-hmm. of the Blackfoot people mm-hmm. in and collaboratively managing the site and interpreting it and and thing and it 's been an amazing experience in changing how this place is presented to the world. you know they were involved they built a visitor center in two thousand and seven in the Blackfoot. Reviewed and, and modified the uh, the plans for the visitor center and, and determined the shape of it and the orientation and what should go inside it and and various mm-hmm. aspects like that and the invo- I mean there's there's uh, lots of involvement now sort of uh, official uh, involvement of the Blackfoot at at the site and this is getting back to the World Heritage site nomination this is probably the st- the strongest aspect of that nomination mm-hmm. yeah. is showing this continuity and this ongoing significance to a living people. Because mm-hmm. um, I should point out, it's being nominated as a as a cultural landscape, as opposed to an archaeological site. Oh, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm.
3: yeah that's a different priority so that that makes sense whether it have that buffer around Mm -hmm. as well because it's 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 the entire landscape but the
1: buffer is the is really becomes the hardest part of the whole nomination and and will Mm -hmm. be where the the nomination it's the make or break part of the nomination and in all likelihood is how strongly that buffer is presented and how how uh the world heritage center responds to it because it's because you've got all these landowners and and so on that may or may not feel that having their land in a buffer zone is in their best interests. Yeah, right? it's increased
3: regulation. And,
1: yeah. yeah, I mean, even though everything's designed to rather than increase regulation, it's to sort of make everything conform to regulation, and that uh, that there's a, a higher level of scrutiny, but this application of the same laws and regulations, mm-hmm. but just with a With greater scrutiny from the regulators,
3: and it might simplify the process when you know that mm-hmm. a singular body is is managing all that
1: yes in in theory yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that's so that but that's was an outcome of of starting my work at uh, at writing on <laughs> yeah writing come a long well.
2: way in that little story, that was uh, quite a quite a journey there
1: yeah
2: but but this speaks to sort of your your interest in in your experience and your background right you're obviously at writing on stone you're involved heavily with the community there's collaboration there's partnerships i mean you, you you've used that to do further work later on in in lytton correct and well or am i jumping ahead
1: well no well yes and i mean lytton's a long way down the okay. road but uh, not alberta which is not no in no, it's as in BC.
2: So where should we go from here? What well, would, you, would you like to talk about frogs in the prairies, or where would you? I mean, Michael, you know, has showed around David Attenborough. He's a naturalist. You have you talked about primatology? I think, even think you did. Didn't you do primate studies in Costa Rica? In,
1: yeah, I went down to Costa Rica for a, a I, couple of months. Michael's a very collective background. And I was, I think I was you shooting talk about it. I was shooting monkeys, is what I, This old with old, a BB gun.
2: Yeah, old old, old school primatology. Old school. You know, right. we wanted a, we wanted oh, to yeah. bring yeah. them. <laughs> What? Bring, uh, <laughs> you okay, for our listeners, Michael, Michael kind of jumped in the writing. It was a but you should give us a just a quick glimpse of... This is De- what informs
3: the archaeological view.
0: Yeah, of Michael, we <laughs> need to context. understand the mind of
1: Michael here. So the, give, the primatology mind of Michael. Just
2: a, a little bit of your experience.
0: Can That's I? Different.
1: Can I just say I didn't actually. I was. I was. <laughs> I was tranquilizer darting monkeys. I wasn't. I. I don't want to leave any. You weren't dirt. shooting them to the dead permanently tranquilizing. <laughs> 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 go, go go. It's all a fabrication. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um Yes, but. No, the point that you raised about, you know, how this has informed my work here. Right, is, in B.C. And what's interesting is that... We're not doing monkeys anymore. Okay, go ahead. Okay. When I first started at Writing on Stone, I had very limited contact or connection to the aber- to indigenous communities and to the Blackfoot people. Mm-hmm. I mean, Blackfoot people were coming to the park and they were... Uh, visiting the sites and so on and I was informally talking with them but when when I started doing my research I started to feel very uncomfortable about being this okay. yeah. non-native guy mm-hmm. writing about sacred images at a at a sacred site as you should right well and, and and well yeah I mean even at the time I knew that 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 was important that you needed to talk to uh the people involved but you know I was new I was young how old were you then um younger than you are now so um, <laughs> it's 70s had <laughs> more hair I remember yeah so <laughs> you no know, what what it was a very inform informative experience because I started working on this and I started to get uncomfortable because I thought I really should be talking to elders and community members about this but when I look back on what I was doing I recognize now or wasn't that much later that I was afraid to make that contact because I was afraid that if I were to talk to the communities they would tell me no but why that was that was the only thing to be afraid of that someone would say no. You know, because this was a this place. I, you know, I'd invested years in this place. It was really important to me. I really wanted to write this stuff about it. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, we were talking. You know, there there was at the time talking. You know, non indigenous people talking about spiritual and sacred sites <laughs> was right. Was more of an issue now than it is, or then as than it is now. I should say. Yeah. You know, we were having. You know. The Bighorn Medicine Wheel and and uh, um, what's that uh, big rock pillar in Wyoming from uh, from uh, Close Encounters of a Third Kind? You know, Richard uh, Drangle Drank- Richard- Mountain is, I think, what Richard Drank- Drangle. Drank- <laughs> yes, Richard. Richard <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Drangle. So, yeah. so you know what? What held me back was, um, well, what if I go to them and they shut me down? Right, which is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> for that, but you asked anyway. Well, I did. I mean, well, it's kind of a funny story because I I did manage to you know talk to a a, a few contacts that I made. It was sort of in through informal channels. Like there's a very well known elder Joe Croshew that I you know sought out at a, at a powwow one day and and talked to him about rock art and rock art research and and that kind of thing. But What's interesting, you know some um, Sean knows this, but my my uh, supervisor for my doctorate was Eldon Yellowhorn, right mm-hmm. and when I went down to Writing on Stone and started working there, I discovered that Eldon Yellowhorn was one of the first park employees at Writing on Stone oh, that really? was uh, he was a park interpreter, so mm-hmm. he was giving wow. tours for several years, and a lot of the information in the park that the park staff used to, you know, present the place to the public was researched and written by Eldon. And, and, he,
2: and he's faculty now at SFU. In at SFU, first...
1: yeah. So when we, when I did my, you know, that's later sorry, on. Sorry, sorry, sorry. But uh, uh, what's, what's funny is that I didn't know him at the time and mm-hmm. I had mutual friends and I uh, engineered an opportunity to meet him at a conference right. and, you know, I got to, you know, I got to know him a little bit and then uh, went back to my this is when I'm doing my master, actually at, at grad school. And so In I, Trent, right? At Tr- That's right, my master's at, at Trent with Dr. Joan Vistokas who um, another shout out was, Dude, Keep going. Is, is really introduced me to this idea of looking at material remains from a cultural perspective as opposed to a archaeological. I mean, she's an archaeologist, but everything—it's art history and and mm-hmm. applying anthropological and art historian methods to mm-hmm. understanding these places—is what 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 she taught me. Um, but while I was there, okay, well, this will this will date me, okay, right? Because uh, I'm starting my master's program, and I'm thinking, God, I you know, I I I need to make myself feel better. But what I'm doing, and you know, make sure that I'm it's okay that I'm. Working on this sacred site, and so I wrote a letter. Wow. Yes. The, wow. The, Wax seal. Y- yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, <laughs> you. It was folded paper in this envelope, and you put a stamp on it. Yeah. yeah. And you put yeah. it in the
2: the, the. the horses would carry it, right? Yeah.
1: It, the it po- is, po- po- yeah. pony express. It's actually a Kevin Costner. Word. Oh, Kevin! Yeah, would come pick yeah. it up for <laughs> <laughs> So full, full, it's full disc- reference. <laughs> They had a actually inv- world, they yeah. had actually invented email before I started my master's program. I just didn't know it. Yeah, um, know. is this so because you were living? In, I was living in, in a, a trailer. I was living in a in little Alberta, trailer on the top of a, a windy s- prairie hill, studying toad? I was not studying spadefoot toads. They just happened to live in the ponds uh, uh, around me, and they were fascinating creatures. Cody, he, um, Michael
2: has published. Michael's a published naturalist
0: as well. So the ma- The mating
2: habits of the the toad, the spade yep. toad in Alberta.
0: It's it's absolutely it- fascinating. I had no idea. Yeah,
1: yeah. I'll send you the reprint. Um, <laughs> uh, go on. Go
0: on. <laughs> so, Eldon
1: Trent. Well, they they in fact uh, about. Three quarters of the way through my first year of my master's program, I got a letter from the department saying you haven't checked your email since you started this program <laughs> and I had to go to the email. office. I had to go Electronic. to the office and ask them what this what this email is. Right. right. <laughs> Where do I find my email? <laughs>
3: And then the the registrar would write out the message, <laughs> transcribed on a Telegram, man. <laughs> yes.
1: And anyway, okay. so I wrote this letter to Eldon, and I don't know if Eldon remembers this, but he wrote back this scathing letter. To did me. he really? He, he did. He really took me down. He's so s- kind. Yeah. Well, you know, he, he I don't know. Um, I'll ha- I'm gonna have to, you know have it out with him mm-hmm. one of these eldon are you listening <laughs> probably not probably <laughs> <laughs> he's got way better things to do yeah uh, so what did eldon say uh, he he just said you know because I, I was asking him advice about you know should i be doing this and how should i be doing it mm. and all this stuff and he just said you know um i don't even think i'm you know uh Uh, Capable of of doing what you're talking about, you know, it's it's such an important place and and has so many different meanings and and uh, you you know you're being um, thinking that you can do this is Mm -hmm. is uh, presumptuous, I guess you could you could say. Yeah, I I, I have to dig that. Yeah, do you have it Uh, saved? Yeah, I, I, I have everything saved. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, so he, yeah. he he basically, he really, you know, made me think about it. And so I, I did, you know, talk to him about it again, and, and we ended up uh, becoming friends. Uh, and then eventually mm-hmm. he suggested that I do a doctorate at SFU in indigenous archaeology related themes.
2: Mm-hmm is it's are you are are you comfortable in segueing into that now michael is is this a good point for you do you feel comfortable so far with well, the
1: podcast i'm i'm comfortable but what do you need to know
2: <laughs> <laughs> i i mean this i mean these early influences i mean well actually tell me a little bit You've you, give us a bit of a background i mean who are some of your other early influences that really informed your thinking to really drive you to study at s f u with Eldon and then wow. we we should talk about your work then in, I, in I, the Stein and all that as well uh
1: well i always had to have i met Allison Wiley when I was doing oh, yeah. my master's, and so we're all she,
2: fans here at the, the transect we're all fans of Allison Wiley we all have
1: secret Allison Wiley tattoos yes oh okay well yeah i i'm not going to go there <laughs> <laughs> uh, so no i so you know Bruce Trigger. Uh, yeah, he was at Trent. Yeah. No Miguel. McGill. He's at McGill. At McGill. Right. Um, My wife
2: really liked uh, Bruce Trigger.
1: Yeah. Liked his work. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Keep going. Who else? Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's. I mean, the the people that I sort of l- looked up to in terms of what kind of work they do are all. Uh, anthropological archaeologists so right yeah you know, people like trigger and wiley and mm-hmm. randall mcguire and right those yeah. those folks um and uh, and but also eldon i mean and that's yeah. why like when i read his his dissertation mm-hmm. I, I you know i was really intrigued by what he was writing about and thought this would be a good a good match his
2: internalist perspective right
1: yeah so you know when he has a, a a lot to say about the differences between internalist and indigenous archaeologies, and
2: so Eldon, you after he spurned you in a letter and, and really tore a strip off, you guys became good friends, mm-hmm. and he influenced you and kind of. And, and Eldon,
1: you didn't tear a strip off me; you you set me straight, is what. Ah, what okay, yeah. all right, fair correction. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, well, you know, when I finished my masters, uh, I got asked to come out to. Work for a CRM company in in DC back in 1995, the big forestry boom when they mm-hmm. when they would even hire people like me to do <laughs> CRM, and <laughs> and you know they you know a lot of the people no, a lot of the people sort of the the s- sort of senior people now in the in the biz in DC got their start in 1994 and 95 with the Forest Practices Code and and yeah, and uh, mm-hmm. go for it and the the agreement between the ministry of forests and and the archaeology branch and so there's a real influx of of people coming here and i got sent up uh to the Chilcotin to work that's one of the first places that i i ended up working and having just finished at at writing on stone i you know i th- i think i was determined to do things a little differently where uh, it needed to be more transparent and upfront, and working with indigenous peoples when you're when you're doing archaeology. And uh, so, the company I, I worked for was Antiquist with Mike Rousseau. And okay. and one of the the impressive things about working for Antiquist back then was the company policy of how every project involved first going and talking to chief and council. And and making sure that they understood what we were doing and why we were doing it, and asking for their their input and participation in hiring uh, band members to do to do the work uh, with you, which is well beyond the minimum. minimum well, yeah, I mean, it, I mean, Antiquus was not the only company doing this uh, at the at the time, but it, it was it was it sti- well it still isn't a any sort of regulatory requirement to do it, but they were always uh, at the forefront of of taking that role of engaging with the indigenous community when yeah. you're doing archaeology. And what was interesting is working in the Chilcotin where very, very little archaeology had taken place prior to that other than uh, in the late 70s and early 80s with, uh, with UBC working down um, in... Uh, mm-hmm. uh, in the, along the Chilco Lake and, and uh, Eagle Lake, um, there had been very little interaction with with archaeologists, and so we were at the foref- we were sort of the forerunners of this wave of of forestry that was was happening, and and we were the only people that were actually going into these offices in many cases and talking mm. to the the communities about what's what's happening, and so. It was it was very eye opening because we were basically messengers of the forestry companies. Yeah, and 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 you know even though you know we thought we were doing something important and something that was in their best interest, they didn't see that. They just yeah. What was the reaction? They saw us as agents of industry coming in there and clearing this landscape for industrial logging because that was the their
3: first understanding of the whole project came through the archaeologists.
1: Yeah, because yeah. It, uh, up to that point, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, sort of uh, generalizing here a little bit because there, there were previous uh, incidents uh, in, the, in the area with forestry companies. But to that point, there had been, you know, Delgamuk was, well, the 1997 Delgamuk uh, decision hadn't mm-hmm. even uh, uh, been made yet. And so mm-hmm. consultation... In resource industries was not uh, legally mandated at all and so forestry companies did not have to talk to First Nations about where they were logging and but all of a sudden archaeologists did Mm -hmm. and so the archaeologists were going in and talking to the to the uh, to the communities and saying hey you know so and so is planning on this cutting permit and they're logging all this and there are times when that was the first they'd heard that this was really happening, and and so we were the you know coming in there with the maps and everything, and yeah. and they were starting to, you know, uh, at a sort of a, a deeper level, the community was discovering what was going on and who was planning on doing, doing what, and so it was kind of an eye opening experience because you know, here we are, engaging with the indigenous community, but we're not perceived as as allies or friendlies. Mm-hmm. at all you know we're kind of the messengers of the of, yeah. the of the enemies
0: often it's it still feels like that's the case a lot of the time when mm-hmm. we we uh i apply for a lot of permits to uh like for archaeological permits to do work within some of the, the nation's territory in the in the lower mainland here and uh, even then, it's often the first time they've heard of any of these developments. Mm-hmm. Is these we, we fill the up the permit applications yeah. and yeah, you,
2: you and mean First Nation permits, right? Yes, Cody, yeah. Yeah. not the HCA, the, yeah. the various First Nation
0: mm-hmm. permits that we complete in the Lower Mainland. But
2: yeah, right. On Cody's comment, do you have you seen it changed for the better? Have you seen anything dramatically, or do you still see, see some of those elements that are still present?
1: Well, Co- well, I mean, definitely where where I work now, it's a com- it's a very different. Scenario And where do you work now? <laughs> you really want to get to Lytton, don't no, you? No, no. I, I, I <laughs> this whole w- thing is like you're Alberta, but like
3: how close to Lytton is Alberta? <laughs> I, I, I just want some context.
1: <laughs> well, I, I mean, I just wanted to I wanted to point out that, you know, when I was working in the Chilcotin and sort of, you know, there was one really um, particular incident that that happened that sort of set me off in a different direction in terms of, of, you know, if I'm going to do this kind of work in this place. And so we had gone out to this, uh, 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 to a, not a, not a cutting permit. What's the uh, wood lot? So we went out and did Uh, an assessment on a, on a wood lot. And, you know, we, we really didn't know. You know, I I had come from Alberta, and I, I knew nothing about Chilcotin archaeology and was learning on the fly, which kind of also made it seem like I was some sort of imposter coming in here and doing this, mm-hmm. this work without really having a background in what's going on. And, you know, we were uh, learning on the fly and trying to come to grips with what's going on there. And we were working in this meadow complex, and we found all these large depressions surrounding this meadow complex below uh, a hill that was covered in in Douglas uh, Fir, large uh, veteran Douglas firs, part of the woodlot. And they were too big, we thought, for cash pits and too small for house pits. And and so we sort of came up with this idea and talking to the community members working with us that these were roasting pits for, for balsam root and other types of roots that were being collected around the the meadows and up on the on the hillside and so we hmm. you know we worked for weeks and documented all these these uh roasting pits these cultural depressions all the way around these meadows and once we were done our work you know one of the things we always did is we go back to the to the band office and say here's what we've done and we'd be very proud of ourselves and pat ourselves on the back and say you know Look at all the archaeological sites we found. Nobody knew about these before, and they're all going to be protected. They're being cut out of the, out of the woodlot, and and you know they're looking at these holes in the ground, and they're saying, S- you know, why are you so concerned about these holes in the ground? What were they used for? And so well, we think they were roasting pits. Well, where are they getting the the roots that they were roasting in it? And we're saying, well, probably up on the hillside in the in the fir Douglas fir. Uh, forest there and they're going okay so for us what was important to us were those those roots that's the traditional use area that is important to us to this day mm. and mm. all you're doing is protecting these holes in the ground <laughs> that are of no use to us now yeah. at all and you're doing nothing to oh, protect yeah, yeah. the, the woodlot yeah. and so you know I very quickly came to the real seeing this Disjunct between right. what we were doing as archaeologists with these, you know, regulated archaeological sites versus what was important for the the community itself. Um, we're and, documenting resource processing sites, and they're
3: worried about the resources. That that's the right, site. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's what's yeah. um, that's
1: what's important to save, right, yeah. and protect, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is sort of gave you know made me think that you know we needed to be more focused on what was important to the communities and and a broader conception of heritage than just the archaeological sites that you had to look at at, and the the context and the resources that were related to it and and I'm not saying in by any means that I'm you know successful at, at doing that uh, at, at, at all times but it became something that was more important to me to start looking at things from that perspective and so event you know i eventually went off uh and uh went on off on my own and uh, as an independent and one of the things i i said to myself is that i wanted to focus on working on projects where i was either working uh, for First Nations on projects that they were in support of or working with First Nations um, in in where they supported that I was uh, the work that I was doing. And so that, you know, through a sequence of events, I, you know, went from the Chilcotin to Lillooet and worked with Lillooet for a while and then worked it, ended up now in, in Lytton. And so my PhD dissertation was sort of a an examination of my 15 years working with the with the Stadlium, the Northern mm-hmm. Statlium in mm-hmm. Lillooet and the the, and the in in Lytton and sort of looking at how the two nations approached heritage and where arche- really where archaeology fits into their conceptions of heritage and heritage stewardship and how mm-hmm. we can be better Trying to um, manage and steward and protect those that heritage. Yeah, it, I know, and it, I mean, I make I, I make
2: fun of Michael for being an elder statesman, but it wouldn't be without all those rich experiences where you could actually figure it out, make mistakes, and then learn from it, and then find a way to do something that you find meaningful, not only for yourself, but that you find for the communities that you work within, right? And and you really seem to be in a good groove now
1: well I mean mistakes is the key word and presumption and right and uh, hubris you know thinking <laughs> all of these are qualities let's <laughs> you know. I was, I was wait for it <laughs> right right
2: well because I was young but you it, but it's until you cut your teeth and deal with some of these things too, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's there's something to be said. You talked about this gap year, and then working in school and balancing between Put your school. foot in your
3: mouth and but, yeah. yeah, all these things that now putting yourself out there and saying the wrong thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's how you learn, and you 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 find a way that that, that, that you, helps you better understand how to make the work relevant, and you find the gaps, and, and you can overcome yeah. them.
1: I mean, you have to approach it with a certain degree of humility, and right. and understand that i mean from my perspective it's it's uh doing the work in a way that's uh fits within what the community wants and taking direction from the community and you have to sort of uh, let go of of ego and get called on a lot of things and because i'm still an outsider and i mm-hmm. cannot by any means represent these nations in terms of how they uh, approach heritage, but I'm trying to sort of facilitate the their efforts to um, protect their their heritage. And then they've got a bigger game plan in mind too.
2: Right, so. and I guess that's uh, so my next question. I mean, is archaeology ready in B.C. To, to do it from a nation's perspective or drive, right? Or, I mean, do you see the world set up for indigenous communities to own it and drive it and shape it? Because it's that's the holders of archaeology are largely non indigenous, right? Those who
1: Yeah, I mean it's still primarily I mean so so I work with the, the tribal council in, in Lytton and over the years that I've been working with them now, which is uh twelve years now, um mm-hmm. I've there's been a steady progression of their uh asserting greater and greater control over the practice of archaeology within their their territory and that's you know not so long ago i would have approached this as as what we should be doing is collaborating um right i remember that
2: phase of you yeah
1: i remember (laughs) the collaboration phase and spiked bracelets yeah yeah it was was awkward for mike (laughs) and, and the problem with Collaboration is that you know archaeologists are really promoting this idea of collaboration, but it's it's kind of a self-serving yeah. trend to mm-hmm. make ourselves feel more relevant to what's what we're doing. You know, we still mm-hmm. want to do the archaeology, but we don't want to give up control over it. So we're going to collaborate. So we don't it's want like anybody this, to say no. Well, yeah, it, precisely. Like going right back to it's your my, story, yeah. my earliest. Experience is that there's this this and there's a you know a fear that uh, uh you know archaeologists will l- lose control over over the discipline to indigenous i i shouldn't say that as a generalized but there are people that are that are fearful of mm-hmm. of that
2: why is that a fear though what, i mean can you can you go into that a bit well i
1: mean it's there's many different factors i mean some of it is because it's a it's a commercial industry right and and so what you're seeing now in bc in particular is this uh heritage stewardship or crm or whatever you want to call it archaeological resource management or whatever is sort of falling into two camps you're you're looking at the corporatization of archaeological forms being Mm -hmm. these smaller firms being bought up by the multinational engineering consulting Mm -hmm. uh, geotechnical firms and then on the other hand you're seeing more and more first nations trying to uh, develop their own internal capacity to do to
0: do the work um and speaking to that one of the things that uh, one of the ways i've run into you a couple of times michael has been through the risk course right yeah uh which is uh, would you care to talk about that
1: at all well the the risk course was originally developed in in 1999 by the uh, as part of this uh, Forest practices code of bc trend that was happening at that time which was to provide training in uh for crew members to participate in archaeological surveys, it was the whole at that time it was called RIC, R I C, um, and the whole. <laughs> it's a good little move to <laughs> <laughs> um And it was primarily designed to provide training for out-of-work forestry workers, which is the interesting aspect of it. But it very rapidly became uh, very few foresters have ever taken the course i can i f- can feel fairly confident yeah, of that, yeah. and it very quickly became an opportunity uh for first Nations to gain some sort of formalized training in in mm-hmm. archaeology you know it's it was originally two weeks, it's only a week now. it's a very basic introduction, but it does sort of set a baseline standard and there's lots of problems with the with the course it's really out of date and needs to. Change with the times, but mm-hmm. it's still, you know, hundreds of, of First Nations participants continue to take it each year, and the feedback is universally positive about the, the course itself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I would hope is that, it, tri- you know, for community members who have had limited introduction to archaeology and sort of in a formal sense, I uh, see this as something that inspires them to go on and uh, uh, take either the certificate course at sfu or or go to thompson rivers university and and do a field school and so on and get uh, get a more of a formal education um, because the work that we do you know when i'm out in the field with with the tribal council the people that are most knowledgeable about what's out there, and where to find it, and how to identify it, and how to interpret it, are the community members. Right, right. You know, I, you know, you see recent grads from from universities come out there, and you know, <laughs> they, <all> like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, what do I do? <laughs> and they, and they, north? <laughs> and and they get trained up by the community members. They're they're the field experts. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and I rely completely on them to to do. Uh, the so you know, but there's You've still build this... that capacity though haven't you though well with... i mean i've 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 helped but it's inter- i mean that knowledge is is something oh, yeah. that they've that they've developed themselves mm-hmm. from years of hunting and and listening to stories or mm-hmm. or what have you um and you know it it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know how to dig a thirty five centimetre square hole <laughs> right <laughs> um so Seven years later, <laughs> I got it, guys. <laughs> Story of my life. <laughs> yeah. So Tenured you know, so, so. so you know, you can come out there with your your BA and and know how to uh, identify a, a, a lithic and mm-hmm. uh, dig a dig a hole and and. Record a, what is that thing called? It's a profile, was it, code? Oh. oh. Yeah, no,
0: I figured I wasn't going to live that one down. Man, yeah. <laughs> <I'm> already referenced. <laughs> but,
1: yeah. um, uh, but that's not all there is. There's all that you know,
2: cultural knowledge that you need
3: yeah.
1: and you need to be so, armed with. Yeah. You know, where should you be digging, right? And, and why would people have been using the landscape the right. way they're using it and, mm-hmm. or, or used it in the past and use it in the present? And where mm-hmm. are the trails and, and where do those trails go and what's at the end of that trail? And mm-hmm. all of that information is stuff that you can't learn at SFU. You can only learn that by being out on the land, working with these community members. And I'm nowhere near to to understanding it at anywhere near the level they do. But archaeologists or people trained at universities bring something to this system because it operates within this state-sponsored regulatory system that still controls... Right, you know the permits and the permit reports, and and navigating the ar- you know, mm-hmm. uh, discussions with the archaeology branch, right. who have been great, by the way. Okay, uh, Michael.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and navigating that bureaucracy, mm-hmm. and dealing mm-hmm. with the dealing with industry and regulators. So there is still, at least I'd like to think that there's still some value to what I do we're just copy yeah.
2: jockeys yeah but that's kind of like made up by the by the man i mean i mean you, i mean you're kind of talking about some gaps between university trained archaeologists and what community members have and, and there's a nice bridge there that you actually can complement each other right but but, well, but where do you see the real shortcomings between university trained archaeologists coming to communities is it just the lack of that deep Time and deep knowledge that they can never so, actually fully understand what it's like to be from that community, no matter how hard you try, you can never yeah. have that emic perspective right
1: so one of the things that 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 bothers the the crew and the tribal council are sort of fly by night people coming in and coming in and out right it's building a relationship you it takes mm-hmm. it takes years years to develop a level of trust where they will share important information with you and trust that you're going to use it wisely and and Mm correctly. And, you know, and I'm, you know, to this day, I'm, I'm still, uh, you know, don't have access to, to all of that, that knowledge, but you need to come in there, uh, not, being the expert, that you're coming there and you're providing assistance, technical Mm -hmm. assistance to a community that knows what they want and knows what they want to do with it. And that, you know, there's no one that would see that heritage as more important than they do, you know, no matter what the archaeology branch or universities or Mm archaeologists might think about, you know, what we're trying to do, they think... Even more so that that this needs to be for a, a variety of reasons that this needs to be protected but
2: that's a big shift in thinking for the way academics come up right in pursuit of knowledge and why they need to be doing archaeology and what the reasonings are for conducting archaeology don't you think
1: well i mean and there's growing i mean this comes back to this this collaborative archaeology yeah thing I get, that yeah, we're, I get, yeah we're talking about you know that there's that is a that is a genuine trend that that's that's happening, and people you know, in participatory action research and and community-based research. I mean, it's all very, and and it's primarily if you look at the projects that that happens in. It's it's generally in academic settings where there aren't all these other uh, m- mitigating factors or con- confounding factors. Right. Where it, whereas in CRM, you know, it, it there's certain parts of collaboration it, it, that would seem impossible the intractable differences between the aims of industry and commercial archaeology and first nations and so collaboration is a very difficult thing to make work because the you know in CRM it, you don't you don't in, see it's even possible well I, I don't i don't know i know that's something we've talked a lot about whether it is possible and i'm not sure that I'm not sure that it is because, you know, one of the things that I've come mm-hmm. to realize is that, that it, you know, from, from like-minded archaeologists who are interested in engaging with indigenous communities, as all of us in this room are, and working with communities and, and collaborating, you know, we have an endpoint that we, we see that this leads to, which is like mutual, full collaboration. Um, but that may not necessarily be the endpoint that indigenous mm-hmm. communities see. Mm-hmm. The endpoint that they see is, is control over their own heritage. It's not collaboration with the archaeology branch and, and archaeologists, it's controlling their own heritage, and that our role is to assist them in, in, in working with it. And that scares a lot of people. It's hard to say that, you know, I'm
0: a tool. <laughs> <laughs> but that is like that is that's the ultimate goal of decolonization so if you want to say that you believe in decolonization in any meaningful way that's that's the end goal that's where you have mm-hmm. to kind of square yourself
2: and yeah. let's be mindful not to use decolonization as a metaphor <laughs> vis-a-vis eve tuck shout out to no you guys got to read uh, i'm sorry i don't understand yeah uh, if like. Yo, you guys will footnote this uh <laughs> check out the podcast the henceforth and check out the writing of eve tuck Okay, going on. (laughs) But but, but that's part of, how do you decolonize it then? We have have
3: technical expertise, which could be used for an ultimate aim by First Nations. It's like we can provide that, but it's, it's difficult when you're working for a consulting company and you have clients from industry. You are providing technical expertise, but who's cut the checks and who's yeah. who's directing them. I part. mean
1: it's a long road, right? I mean looking at how consulting operates now compared to how it was 25 years ago in the province there's been huge advances in terms of of this the standards of practice. And so, you know, mm-hmm. there's been Big changes, and but it's and still
2: slow though. Like I'm really impatient about it. We're not anywhere near it. Changes. It's it's because you're young.
1: <laughs> but you don't have that.
2: Pole. I want to change the world. Yeah, the time it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, you do. Michael does have quite a breadth of of experience. And Sean's only in his mid seventies. Yeah, I'm only in my seventies. <laughs>
1: i mean what how do we change the industry yeah i mean where do, we, but, where do you go i mean my my the breadth of my experience like you're a, you're a far more accomplished archaeologist than i am in terms oh, that's of no doing, doubt no in, doubt my <laughs> <son>. <laughs> that was that was that's what we're debating here yeah, in, terms, <laughs> in in terms of that and that's that's important important if you can control yourself sorry <laughs> go <laughs> yeah I'm really, I'm really happy with that one yeah
0: one of my favorite things is about about this podcast is when sean makes a joke and then laughs at it so hard himself, he he falls backwards into the couch it's the absolute best (laughs)
1: um but no so the i mean it's that's one kind of experience another kind of experience is is working with communities and individuals and and learning to understand what they want and 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 need and it is in a commercial sense that's a very difficult thing to fully realize yeah they get the
2: client to really understand that worldview or that perspective and mm -hmm. why a community would want it done a certain way i mean the community has uh, at least consent to be open to that kind of development within their territory first that's the first step
3: right
1: Yeah, and I should I should say I mean with all the the, the legal developments over the last years and and the, the Supreme the, Court rulings, the Supreme you were Court, uh, yes, the Silcoaten decision and so on. You know, the writing's on the wall that First Nations have growing control or or rights and 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 can demonstrate title, and ultimately, you know, I think we're going to see some sort of scenario where. Nations will be responsible for their own heritage within. I mean, it's complicated with territory overlaps and sure. and, and capa- diff- differing capacities, of capacity yeah. and 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 so on. But you know, you're seeing more and more of that. But in my in the in my context, you know, what I what's so great about working for the NNTC is well, you know, that they um, they really want to do this right and they're very active about it and what they are doing is going ab- outside of the the uh, government to government negotiations and going directly to industry in a lot of cases and negotiating with, with industry. It almost becomes like an extra legal regulatory system where we still have the permits and do all the work to meet those standards of the archaeology branch. Yep. Do you See a
2: place where communities will drive their own archaeology for their own interests, their own knowledge without it having to be related to development? Like where that's where the funding largely comes from to so sort of control that.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think everybody that I work with would would prefer to be doing this for... Its intrinsic value as opposed to in a right. development oriented situation, um, but that 's where the the money is mm-hmm. but the flip side of that is is that as that uh, these sites become impacted, you know agreements may be signed where there's opportunities for uh, having uh, monies available for doing research Uh, projects.
2: Like future research? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I mean that would be the the ideal situation is is a combination of those those two facets of of archaeology. And I should, you know, while we're talking all about archaeology here, but when the work that we're doing out there, the work that I do in conjunction with the communities is much broader than Mm-hmm. You know, I'm kind of using archaeology as a as a, a placeholder for a much broader aspect of, of their definition of heritage. So, yeah. you yeah. know, it's it's okay. uh, sacred sites, trails, right? Intangible,
2: intangible, yeah,
1: everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I have a, a quick question. It's it's
3: like it's tangential, um, kind of a, a wrap up. we the. I think. We're,
0: what are we at now? I don't have to wrap up Yeah, do we? It's like hour twenty. Yeah, Michael's
2: gonna go too.
3: Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> no no we well, can't wait. Anyway, <laughs> I have a question. Yeah. So uh have you been out in the field uh, there's this in the field concept which is important to archaeologists. Uh like like being in the place. Yeah have you been in a place this summer? <laughs> that you're interested in.
1: Ah, uh, see, so you're trying to trip me up. You're not a real archaeologist, but yeah. have, have you got your hands dirty this, yeah, this summer like at all? A place all. could also be a com- like a microfiche in, a, in an archive somewhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> as, a, as opposed to my sweltering home office. That, yeah, uh, of way, that's also that, a
3: place I like to count that. Yeah, yeah. No,
1: I mean, it really, it makes a huge difference um, how much time I get to spend... Yeah. in the field and i spent a lot more time in the field in the past than i than i do now um and i wish i spent more because you know i used to take sean out on on field projects and he would tag along behind you taught me. him how to drive yeah you, know,
2: you make it sound like i was a child <laughs> you, were like, you, were, you were like you're like to pack his lunch to twi- every morning oh, uncle, mikey. <laughs> uncle mikey how does this work <laughs> Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's the case, you know, where the student has surpassed the teacher. A, oh, you know, wow. You know, but I do try and, and get out there. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting out to writing on stone uh, every couple of months as well. Oh, yeah? So, yeah. So in addition to working for the tribal council, I've got that, keep that connection mm-hmm. alive. Wow. So I do, and that's really incredibly important to me to have that connection to the landscape i mean that's how i first became involved both in all of these places uh, whether it's writing on stone or the chilcotin or or lytton um it's always been captivated by by this the landscape and captivated by the people living in this landscape and learn and learning about it and learning from them and so that's a part I I wish I had more involvement with uh right now.
0: Mm-hmm. That's uh amazing. Um we're uh yeah, uh wrapping up here, I think. So uh I want to say uh, thank you again so much for uh, coming out and having a chat with us.
1: You're welcome. I hope I was as as funny as as Sean was hoping. (laughs) (laughs) Sean had big big hopes. I I had big hopes. (laughs) Yeah, you were funny. But you you were
2: very uh, sincere and honest with us and actually uh, telling these stories and Mm -hmm. giving us some insight into the. Michael Mind.
3: And the old days of 94. Um, I love back.
2: hearing about that. Yeah. Would yes, lots of 94 yeah. do it for me? Yeah. Back yeah. For
0: me. <laughs> I can't imagine.
1: No iPhone? iPhone? Dot? <laughs> Dot Matrix? <laughs> what? I still have my Dot Matrix printer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I remember just having bags and
3: bags of those strips you'd tear off the ends. Yeah, yeah. 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 What,
1: do you, what did you use those for?
3: Uh, for sh- uh, jumping on and uh, just throwing in the air. That's all I did with it. <laughs>
0: Oh, the good old days. <laughs> Michael, oh, go ahead, Cody. No, I was just going to say, yeah, uh, thank you again. Uh, and I guess uh, for myself, Cody. Also for Ian Sellers. <laughs> 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 and, and,
2: and Sean P. Connaughton, thank you, Michael, for joining us this evening.
0: Yes, thank you so much. Thanks, it was fun. And we- uh, we'll get you uh, next time on The Transact. I don't
3: think we ever said my last name on here. Thank you.